Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. We are embarking on a very special mini-series here at Breakpoints on our favorite topic, which is, wait for it, Breakpoints. So we have leaders and experts from two breakpoint setting organizations, the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute, or CLSI, and the United States Committee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, or USCAS, and they are going to teach us everything we need to know about how we interpret whether or not we can use certain antimicrobials to treat our patients. This is a five-episode series, and first we're going to talk about what are breakpoints and what is the philosophy behind these two organizations, and then we'll get into four different categories of bug-drug combos with Piperacillin tazobactam, the aminoglycosides, the fluoroquinolones, and then we'll round out with some odd bug-drug combos for some of our non-fermenters like Stenotrophomonas and Acinetobacter. We are going to be focusing only on antibacterials. So if you want more information on antifungal susceptibility testing, you can check out episode 64, which aired in September of 2022. And on that episode, we, we deep dive into some nuances surrounding fungal susceptibility testing. But all right, let's introduce our speakers. So first, Dr. Mike Satlin, who's an infectious diseases physician and the clinical director of transplant oncology infectious diseases at Cornell Medicine. Dr. Satlin's research interests are in the spaces of epidemiology, diagnosis and treatment of multidrug-resistant gram-negative bacterial infections, particularly in immunocompromised hosts. And related to today's discussion, he is currently the co-chair of the Breakpoint Working Group of the CLSI Subcommittee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, and he participates on multiple committees with the ARLG. So Mike, welcome to Breakpoints. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Next, we have Dr. Jim Lewis. Dr. Lewis is the Clinical Supervisor for Infectious Diseases at Oregon Health and Science University. His responsibilities include co-directing the OHSU Antibiotic Stewardship Program and serving as the Infectious Diseases Clinical Pharmacist for OHSU. His professional interests are antimicrobial susceptibility testing, antibiotic and antifungal utilization, and the optimal integration of rapid microbiology diagnostics in antibiotic stewardship. Dr. Lewis previously served as the co-chair of the Breakpoint Working Group of the CLSI, and now he's the chair, very fancy, of the CLSI AST subcommittee. So Jim, welcome. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for the invitation. And last but certainly not least is Dr. Jason Pogue. So Dr. Pogue is a clinical professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy and an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at Michigan Medicine. Dr. Pogue's research interests focus on the epidemiology and management of infections due to multidrug-resistant organisms, particularly in the gram-negative space and all things antimicrobial stewardship. He is a past president of SIDP and the chair of the executive committee of USCAS, so quite breakpoints royalty we have here. Jason, welcome. Uh, hi there, and thanks for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. Today, we're on week three of our breakpoints miniseries. This week, we'll be deep diving into the aminoglycosides, so gentamicin, tobramycin, amikacin, and we might even talk a little bit about our dear friend, plazomycin, an antibiotic that's near and dear to all of our hearts. To start this discussion, just like we did last week when we went through Piperacillin and Tazobactam, I want to go from each organization talking about Enterobacterialis and Pseudomonas, what the current situation is, so what breakpoints have we been operating on, and where did those data come from? 
And then we'll get into what the updates are and why those changes are being made. And so Jim or Mike, either one, whoever wants to start, can you please explain to us the current aminoglycoside breakpoints for the Enterobacterialis and where those data came from? These breakpoints are so old that uh, maybe I'm not the right person to talk about them. But I uh, know these are old. <laughs> these I mean, this is like pretty Jim, you know, out in the town in college. I mean, these are old, old breakpoints. And that was part of the problem, right? Like that these breakpoints were so old and really were based on expert opinion, some MIC distribution data, no PKPD, and very, very, very limited clinical data. And in fact, you can go back to old CLSI notes from the 80s where there were suggestions that maybe we should lower these breakpoints by a dilution, but nothing ever quite stuck. And I think really here, the, the impetus, I think there were two things that led, really led us to take a you know, a good look at this, because we knew there was a problem here for a while. Um, one I would say is US CAS really did a great deep dive and really incredible work to try to understand the PKPD, apply the PKPD principles that we apply to new drugs to some of these older drugs, including aminoglycosides. So that document that's publicly available is really incredible. The other, as, as Jim said, was plazomycin came to CLSI to discuss breakpoints. And we held plazomycin to a tough standard of the, the typical, you know, yeah. standard PKPD process, and, and, and that got its breakpoint. But obviously, these other aminoglycosides, the conventional aminoglycosides, were not held to that standard when these breakpoints were set. And one of the reasons that I think it took so long is because there were some really, really tough decisions that had to be made for aminoglycosides. And primarily, it's because of this. If you look at MIC distributions for many of the aminoglycosides, it tells you one story, meaning it'll tell you an epidemiologic cutoff value of X, which really means this is the upper end of what we think wild type MIC organisms would be. Meaning any organism you have, it could test in that range. If you apply modern PKPD data, which USCAS nicely did, it can tell you that the breakpoint should be smack in the middle of that distribution. I don't mean just cutting off a little toe. I mean like bisecting the whole darn thing. And that makes for a really, really tough challenge because if we just blindly set the breakpoint right smack in the middle of that MIC distribution, what you're left with is a non-functional test because the organism that you're testing, if you test it at 2 a.m., it could fall on the left. If you test it at 5 a.m., it could fall on the right. The same bug, same inoculum. Okay. And so that led to some really, really hard decisions about what to do with these aminoglycosides. So uh, I'm going to say what the old breakpoints are. I'm going to summarize. Should we start with Enterobacterialis and break it up the way we did with Piptazo? Okay. So, yeah, the old, let's do so the old CLSI, and I mean old, okay, uh, for Gent and Tobra, it was 4, 8, and 16 for the Enterobacterialis. And for Amicacin, it was 16, 32, and 64. Okay. Those are the old breakpoints. The new, and this really is hot off the press, this is... 2023, just published in the last week, um, is to lower for Enterobacterialis the Gent and Tobera breakpoints, one dilution, so it's two, four, and eight, and to lower the amicacin breakpoints, two dilutions, so four, eight, and 16, okay? And there are dosage comments that are associated with these breakpoints, some of which are a little bit different than what you see in the FDA label. For example, for Gent and Tobera, the best we thought we could do was based on giving seven mgs per kg per day 
which is a little bit of a different dose than you see if you read the FDA package insert. For amikacin, actually, it was a dose that's within the FDA limits of 15 mg per kg. So those were the changes. We can certainly get into the nitty gritty of, of why we went there. But this was one of those clear examples where the micro data was telling us one thing, the PKPD data were telling us something else. And we had to weigh the micro data, how far we want to cut into the wild type distribution, what that would do to laboratory testing versus what the PKPD modeling or tell us and clinical data. And I would say that, you know, one thing we didn't have a tremendous amount of is clinical data because not that many people use aminoglycosides as monotherapy other than for urinary tract infections. And we did have a nice meta-analysis that showed essentially from 2007 uh, that, yeah, they seem to work for monotherapy for UTIs, but we really don't know for systemic infections or infections that originate outside the urinary tract and some clinical data that suggests failures. The only real clinical PKPD target that we really have is maximum concentration over MIC. And that's about 8 or 10, depending on the study that you look at. And we do know that with the old breakpoints, there was just no way to get tobramycin exposures that had a Cmax over MIC of 8 or 10 without lowering the breakpoint. So clinical data, modest. I will highlight one paper, actually, that I did find helpful. And that I hadn't seen until we took a deep dive into this. That was by Kim and colleagues. It's published in AAC in actually 2002. But essentially, a lot of the data we have for aminoglycoside monotherapy is for resistant organisms, right? Like, because that's, you use aminoglycosides, so you don't have other drugs. And so this was looking at ESBLs. And essentially what they found was that when people were treated with aminoglycoside monotherapy, and the study was very small and a lot of caveats, observational, yada, yada. But if the MIC was right at the breakpoint, failure was very high. If it was two or three dilutions lower, then failure was much less common. And I would say other tiny little nuggets of clinical data were really related to resistant organisms. KPCs, Ryan Shields had a paper that, you know, when MICs were two to Gent and Tobra, that maybe outcomes were better than if they were four. So a lot of signals pointing us in the right direction, but this really extreme conflict of MIC distribution data and PKPD telling us different things led to some tough decisions that were made and probably some differences with US cast. Although I would say that in general, I think the directions taken were quite similar. Yeah, and I think, you know, Aaron, the only thing I would add to that is, again, I would really encourage our audience to look at the comment um, next to the aminoglycosides in the new M100, because I think, again, you know, some of the limitations that Mike put on the availability of the data, the new dose to support the constructs, I think this becomes really important for our audience to look at that comment in the M100. I think the other thing, too, is we tried to wait on plazomycin with the hope that that would bring us some more modernized data to kind of look at with this. And we did try to hold the class to a similar, you know, set of constructs as to what we held plazomycin to. But, you know, to Mike's point and anyone who in the, oh, I also have to give a shout out to Susan Butler Wu. If you go to the CLSI website and look at her slide presentation on the history of these breakpoints, it is absolutely glorious. Um, and and in a, a fascinating dive through history, if you really want to nerd out in this space. But, you know, this was one of those one of those times in the room where basically we had to threaten to lock people in and say nobody was leaving until we came to a decision because there were it, it, it felt very polymixony in that there was there was some knockdown drag out fights uh, that were about to occur in that room.
Join the CLSI, they said. It'll be fun. <laughs> I just want to say, um, yeah, I completely omitted that part. These breakpoints are not on par with other breakpoints. They're not on par with Plazomycin breakpoints, okay? And there is a big disclaimer about these breakpoints that they were really based on a PKPD target of stasis, usually for serious mm -hmm. infections. We'd like to see a one log kill if possible. That data on systemic infections outside the urinary tract are quite limited. And that combination therapy for other indications should be considered. So there's a big disclaimer on these breakpoints that's really important to highlight. Yeah. It says it like right above the where the breakpoints are on the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's really important because one, this is a huge change. I think for a lot of people, we're used to seeing amicase in 100% for everything, and that will no longer be the case, appropriately so. And I think it does position where these agents are actually used a little better. I think I, this also, honestly, is going to lend to a big come to Jesus about a lot of the guidelines that recommend combo therapy with a beta-lactam and aminoglycoside for certain serious infections, because none of our novel agents are reflected in those guidelines for CRE and other things. And I think this is going to be really, really important with these new breakpoints and knowing we have novel agents and how we position what's actually susceptible, how our antibiograms look, et cetera. So Jason, can you talk us through this beautiful US CAST document, which we've mentioned many times on this podcast before as an excellent reference for people. It's over 200 pages, it's free, it's publicly available, and it did start the whole train rolling on updating the aminoglycoside breakpoints. Yeah, this is definitely a careful what you ask for topic. Uh, in the last five years of my life, hundreds of hours of these types of discussions, and that's not an exaggeration about what to do with this, and we're changing. And, and I don't know if it's right or wrong. And, and again, I, this, is a, this is another situation, and we talked about this, Aaron, in the first pod. This is another situation where clinicians need to look at all of the details that went into these decisions, how things were weighed, and that has clinical implications. And I think that's really important. So I, like I said, this has been a part of my life for the last five years, but this stemmed back actually from 2014. This is one of the first things that USCAS did. So this actually predates me. Um, and really, Sujata Bhavnani deserves all the credit in the world for the, the amount of work that she did. So this is, a, I know we have a huge pharmacy audience for this. You should go look at that document just to get renal dose recommendations for the aminoglycosides because she did all of these simulations to figure out what renal dose adjustment should look like for empiric dosing of high dose extended in interval aminoglycosides, stuff that doesn't exist and so to, to hit AUC targets. And so I would really encourage you, again, the best stuff is always in the appendix and that is the case of this document as well. There's just such good nuggets in the back of that document. But this started in 2014. And this is, Jim, you, you talk about the presentations at CLSI. This is where it is so great to have Ron Jones in our organization um, because like he'll just, I'll, I'll ask him a question like, why did you do this in 1973? And he will clearly remember the entire conversation that went into the discussion. He'll be like, look at this publication. Look how stupid we were at this time and all this. And this is the, the original stuff is total just MIC distribution stuff. And like, it's funny to look at some of those documents, like, cause they'll say something like the concentration, it won't even say like what 
constant peak trough whatever the concentration is above 16 so 16 seems okay right as a susceptibility breakpoint like so it's it's come a long way in the last 50 years but getting those story times with ron is one of the true joys of my life and, and this was definitely one of those and so in 2014 u.s cast really wanted to look at this. And I think Plazo, I agree, Mike, I think Plazo was a driver of of looking at this as well, is that, you know, we wanted fair rules for all of these different drugs in the same class. And so the goal was to apply modern day pharmacometrics to immunoglycosides. Um, and really just, again, pharmacometric uh, approaches, looking at PKPD, looking at the clinical, looking at MIC distributions, but also doing it with high dose extended interval or what some people like to call once daily aminoglycosides. And I will tell you that the current breakpoints from uh, USCAS are very similar to what Mike and Jim will talk about with the current CLSI recommendations. And I will tell you, we don't, we did not agree. This was, these were not unanimous decisions when these decisions were made. And we are actually revisiting this right now. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But as, as Mike alluded to, you know, just trying to make the pieces of this puzzle fit decisions were made. I think stasis is a really important one for people to understand because that is not the normal rule that is applied from a PKPD standpoint. And it was applied at that point in time with the thought process being, one, we need to make this work. I think, Jim, I think your point's very well taken. Like uh, you need a functional test. Um, And so it was, we need to make this work. So that was one reason. And, And the second was, is that at least in theory, these drugs are used for urinary tract infections. These drugs are used as part of combination therapy. So maybe you can be a little bit more friendly with the target. Again, is that based off of hard facts? No. And I think it's important that people understand that, that it's not, but it was a reasonable, and I still think it's, even though we're changing our thought process on it, I still think it's a very reasonable thing. And so when you put all of those rules into it, and again, read that 300 page document, very similar breakpoints to what Mike just said. Um, for amikacin, it dropped to four uh, as susceptible, eight for resistant. The one thing that I think would be different from what we did back in 2018 to what CLSI does currently is that we, we gave pneumonia breakpoints as well. We try to do that as an organization wherever possible. So we will look at the neutropenic lung model, right? We'll try to use those connects. We will take into consideration penetration, all of those types of things. And, and if the breakpoint ends up being different for a pneumonia because of those issues, than it might be for a bloodstream infection, we'll have different breakpoints. And, and so for that reason, we actually have breakpoints for Gent and Tobra in that in, in the current version um, for pneumonia that are a dilution lower. So the breakpoints are one instead of two in that situation. And so that's where we were at. And that's, I think a lot of that is what was presented at CLSI and, and had led to a lot of the discussions. And, and I, will, I will say that I still think it is very reasonable to do that. This is not a clean, easy thing to do, but we do revisit stuff. We have new people who came into our organization. I wanted to revisit this because I actually was part of the dissenter group back in the day, and I just wanted to continue to have this conversation. And once again, this is another presentation that you can find on the USCAST website. Sujata kind of walks through this story of, of what we're thinking. We actually don't have new recommendations. We've kind of just thrown some stuff out there to get feedback on and get and get people's input. But I think one of the big things that we changed to 
Um, and this absolutely becomes a testing issue. So Mike, I know the problems that this introduces, um, but we did, we are looking at it as a one lung. And the thought process is for that is simple. Um, the first one is, again, this is the same organization just continuing to have these conversations. So I think that's really important for the audience to understand is that this is a really hard, hard class of antibiotics to kind of come up with these recommendations for. But the thought process was that maybe our old thought had some issues. And what those issues potentially are, are that one, for combination therapy, if you think about it, and Aaron, you did a great job of bringing this up, right? When you think about it, if I'm giving empiric combination therapy with an aminoglycoside, it's assuming the beta-lactam isn't active, right? And so that's what I'm doing it for is to extend having it as an active drug. And so to give it a stasis rule versus a one log for the beta-lactam, it was hard for us to kind of say that that was internally consistent. And so that was one reason that we're kind of thinking about moving to one log. And then the second one is that UTI, and I know everyone on this pod appreciates this, UTI is not a simple disease state, right? Uh, again, it's one thing if a patient has cystitis, it's another thing if they have a, a pilo, it's a completely different thing if they have a complicated UTI due to a you know a ureteral stent. And while stasis is, is reasonable for all of this, our current thinking is, is that we don't have a good reason to say that that should be handled differently than another infection. And so for that reason, we're proposing or where we're talking right now is moving to one lung. And so as you can imagine, this makes the susceptibility shifts even bigger. It's not a huge, it's not a huge change from what um, Mike talked about. The, I think the four becomes a two for amicacin, and I think the two actually becomes a 0.5 for Tobra and genomycin if you do this. But the one other thing that we're doing, and again, I look, I actually want comments from Jim and Mike and the whole CLSI crew on this as well, is that we also don't want to ignore the fact that this is one class that we actually do TDM in, right? And, and so even though you might not have 90% PTA at a tobramycin MIC of one, it's actually much lower than that. You can dose adjust to be able to safely target that. And so what we are throwing out there for the community to chomp on and, and yell at us or love us for whatever it is, again, that's why it's an open comment period, is kind of this idea of an STDM category that if you do get level, again, if you don't do it, then you then the break point is what we just talked about. But if you do do it, then you can potentially target a higher MIC, but it's kind of contingent on that. You get concentrations in a patient and dose to the AUC targets. And so it, again, this is very raw. Yeah, Jim, I can see you dying to Oh yeah, chomping at the bit, chomping at the bit. This is very raw still. And we, again, we haven't even kind of come to internal consensus on this. We presented it just to get feedback at this point in time. And so please do give the feedback. And again, I, I say that to my, my friends on the pod here, but also anyone listening, please go to the website and weigh in. So Jason, you said a lot of important things there. I want to quickly break some of them down to put context to that content for the audience. So first, we mentioned setting targets, setting breakpoints at stasis versus one log kill. To be clear, beta-lactam, so our last episode we talked about piperacillin tazobactam. Is it correct to say in general beta-lactam breakpoints are set at a one log kill target? Yes. Okay. So just for our listeners to put that in context, the aminoglycosides had previously been set at stasis endpoints, and so that's something to discuss. 
I think, and this is going to be one of the places where, you know, to Jason's point, you're going to see some philosophical differences between the groups a little bit. Um, you know, I think Mike really did a phenomenal job of pointing out that these were uncomfortable decisions for everyone in the room when it came to kind of where we were drawing some of these lines. But one of the huge problems is that you are right on top of the wild type distribution at a stasis endpoint. And to Jason's point, as soon as you drive this thing to a one log kill, you are now smack dab in the middle of that distribution. And I would love to be proven wrong here, but getting a reliable test that will function in the middle of the wild type distribution I am not confident that is something that with current technology or even technology that I'm aware of on the horizon is going to be something we will see anytime soon. I think we all, you know, we all are like, eh, with that stasis endpoint, we're not thrilled about it. But man, if you try to go, if you try to tighten it up, you're, you know, you're just going to derail the entire thing. And and Mike, would, would that be your sentiment as well? Yeah, I... I will say that before talking to hundreds of microbiologists at CLSI, I kind of poo-pooed the whole ECOF thing, ECV, until yeah. my the first kind of aha moment <laughs> was instances where we did dip into the wild type distribution a little bit, okay? Um, because we're not abs- nobody's an absolutist here, right? And the disk didn't work, okay? And the disk didn't work well, mm-hmm. not not to the criteria that we would like. And it made me realize, well, the disk didn't work that well, meaning the disk didn't correlate to MICs as well as we like. And that's because the MIC breakpoint was in the wild type distribution, which means that the test is not going to be that reproducible. Now, it's not an all or nothing thing. So I think that's important, right? We don't know for sure where that wild type distribution ends, okay? And there's disagreements about what that number is. In fact, UCAS, mm-hmm. who probably keeps track of this the best, if you notice, they, they'll say what they think their ECV is or epidemiologic cutoff value or end of the wild type distribution is, but they also give a range for what that might be. So there's definitely disagreements about that. But certainly, you know, our major hesitation about putting breakpoints, and when I say in the middle, I mean like, you know, it's a, people can't see what my hands are doing here, but it's a bell curve, right? And then you can have all sorts of resistance later, you know, uh, to the right. Um, But if you put it right in the middle of that bell curve, the test is not going to work very well. And so that's a huge problem that I think I've come more and more to appreciate uh, as I've become more and more involved in this space. This is where, you know, we're struggling. It'd be easy, right? If this wasn't a problem, we'd mm-hmm. all have the break point right. at, you know, 0.5 or, or 1, you know, no problem. Nobody would really have any consternation about it. I think, Aaron, too, one more thing. You know, we all bemoan that the manufacturers aren't updating their stuff. The manufacturers are not going to go to the FDA with an error rate that they know is going to blow them up. So, you know, it, so if you if you want an updated test, you've got to have it in such a way that the device manufacturer can have a shot at getting it through the FDA. And yep. if you drive in the middle of that distribution from, you know, again, lots and lots of microbiologists doing this to me, over the years, um, you know, it's like, thou shalt not, you know, you, you better be real careful doing that. Yeah, those are excellent points. Jason, what were you going to add? Yeah, just two, two things. One is, once again, this is a really important 
reason that read those documents of what goes into these decisions, right? Because you can see there's different things and there's different considerations and potential issues that come with each of them. The one thing I would say, Jim and Mike, is that there is also the flip option, right? If you're that concerned about splitting the distribution, you could kill the drug, right? You can put it on the left side. And that was talked about. And and I would argue that that is a safe, like, again, my just Jason's belief is that that's actually safer than pushing it out further than we feel comfortable with. And yeah. and I think Jason, you know, we talked about that. That came up with Amicason in this discussion. And I will tell you, our South American colleagues almost rioted, you know, and, and I think, you know, so there's, there's all of these discussions and considerations yeah. and whatnot that go into all of this. And isn't that a good segue yeah, to Pseudomonas think- originosa? I was just going to say that, Mike, Sorry, you, you could host the pod. Oh, no. I think, no, that was beautiful. I'm so impressed. That was exactly, that's exactly how you do it. But yes, no, it is a good segue into pseudo because I think what happened with pseudo maybe arguably is even more controversial. Interestingly, with Pip Teza, we started with Enterobacter Alice, which was like a mind game. And then pseudo was seem, seemingly more straightforward here. I think the changes with pseudomonas are, are more drastic and really clinicians need to know what's up with this. So um, Jim, do you want to walk us through what you did with aminoglycosides and pseudomonas? Yeah. So, you know, basically, you know, everybody sit down, strap in. This is about to get wild and crazy because <laughs> gent is dead. I, I think that is that is the take home from the M100 for 2023 from CLSI that will most blow people's minds and both most lead to questions is, wait a minute, there's no gent breakpoint. Uh-huh. To Jason's point, it looked so bad and was so in the middle of the distribution. And, and Mike, and as I recall from the mental picture I've got right now, not only was it in the middle of the distribution, it was like to the left third of the distribution, if I remember right, to get into even some of the stasis targets. And so basically it was it was fascinating because the room basically looked at that and went, oh, Jen's dead. And that was, I think, the least contentious discussion that we had that day. And I thought that might be what blew up the entire room. Um, so yeah. Gent is gone for Pseudomonas. Not to, I'm so sorry to interrupt no, you, but before no, we get absolutely. to tobermycin, I think this is important because I think what we're going to see slash hear, I think we've already seen it in some of the discussions on social media and whatnot is how was gentamicin an anti-pseudomonal? It's been an anti-pseudomonal my entire life, my entire career, my entire existence, all I know. And now all of a sudden you're telling me it's not. And I think the answer is it never was. And yep. the breakpoint was probably wrong prior or to Jason's excellent point in some of our previous episodes, resistance changes over time, the bugs adapt and things like that. But with the data we have in front of us now and what we know now and looking at more of the PKPD standpoint, it, you can't put enough gentamicin in a patient to achieve appropriate targets safely to treat pseudomonas. And so that's the new truth. And gentamicin no longer has an anti-pseudomonal breakpoint. This is, I think, going to be really important. We'll talk as we wrap this up about what clinicians need to know. I think you can't just take Gent away and suppress it because it's on your panel right now. You're probably not going to immediately update your panel, or you might not have a different panel for pseudomonas and other gram negatives, which is probably the case. And so for pseudo, you'll have to just suppress Gent. We're talking about adding a comment that explains this. And I know no one reads the comments, but saying, you know, as of 2023, gentamicin is no longer recommended for the treatment of pseudomonas or something to that effect, because forever people have thought Gent and Tobra are interchangeable. In pharmacy school, we learn if you specialize in ID, you might learn Tobra's preferred for pseudomonas, but that's one of those like things people teach you and you don't know why. Now we know why. Um, but I think 
this is going to require some education so that people do not continue to interchange these drugs like they always have. And so I think this is a really big change. That's why I just wanted to pause there. But what's happening with Tobra and amikacin in the pseudomonas space is also big and important. So Jim, what are those updates? So, and again, Tobra was driven down, and Mike, the number is eluding me right now. One. I believe it was dropped to two. two oh, it went to one. Okay. And then amikacin went to four, right? No, amikacin is just a urine. I'm a mess. Water. Yeah. Oh, that's right. It was just, I looked at this this morning, too. My gosh, how did I brain lock well, on that? Well, it's hard that? to get past the Everything. dentist, dead. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. See, the gent is dead is what I fixated Gent's on. Gent is dead. So. Tobra, less than or equal to one. Wim, do you need a nap? Do you need a nap? I do. I clearly need a nap this afternoon. Tobra, less than or equal to one. Amikacin, stay 16. So less than or equal to 16, but urine only, which internationally I think is a huge change. So you've effectively said gent and amikacin are not anti-pseudomonal drugs for all intents and purposes. You left it for UTI for countries that might not have other novel beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors, basically. And then Tobra, less than or equal to one. This is important. Our panel doesn't go down to one. So this is yeah. something you're going to have to think about. Um, Mike, any other comments on that from the CLSI standpoint? Yeah. So you may argue, well, why two with Enterobacterolis and one with Pseudomonas, right? Usually it's the opposite, right? Like usually are. And, and we acknowledge, this is a case where we did dip a little bit you know, we're not absolutists, into the wild-type distribution. And Tobra and Pseudomonas didn't look amazing, okay? And it still has the same caveat as for the Enterobacterolis. But it wasn't completely dead, like with Gent, and, and a little bit, and, and somewhat so with Amikacin. Um, so that was sort of, again, the tension going on uh, that was in the room for, for, for driving that breakpoint down to one. You know, the Amikacin... Uh, keeping it as a urine-only breakpoint, I, I guess I would argue that it may not just be for countries where they don't have access to newer drugs, right? Like aminoglycosides, there does seem to be a solid amount of clinical literature that, you know, once daily aminoglycosides, even as little as a single dose, in, even in our IDSA guidelines, right, is a great option and, and much better option in some ways than having to give a drug, you know, two, three, four times a day. So we didn't want to completely destroy amicacin. Um, and it looked slightly better than Gent, but it was still pretty bad. I will say one of the, your comment, Aaron, was really important that, you know, if I could put one comment in our, you know, electronic medical record, right? Let's say you suppress Gent, you don't release it. And let's just assume that you're, uh, you know, you can get Tobra, you know, our microscan panels go down to one. So, so we could do this, right? It's very important to say that Tobramycin susceptibility does not predict you know, gentamicin susceptibility or amicacin, you know, susceptibility. That's really important. It's hard and such a fine line we walk as clinicians implementing these breakpoint changes of like, you know, when is the right time to have a comment? How do you cascade to guide people and not have them assume things? And it's, it is definitely a challenge. So I'd love to talk more about people as they update these and how they implement these. Jason, let's round us out and finish us off with this. What are the U.S. cast aminoglycoside breakpoint recommendations for pseudomonas? Yeah, so before I get there, I just want to comment on, on a couple of things. The current breakpoints from US gas are also stasis based, as we talked about before with Enterobacter alleys. But again, please look at our stuff on the website and see if you like what we're changing to or you hate what we're changing to or potentially changing to. 
One of the reasons that it's one for Tobro for Sued versus two for Enterobacter allies is the stasis target is different between those two organisms for the drug. And so that's one of the reasons, it's a little bit higher for Pseudomonas, and that's where you get into that issue. So that's one important thing. To your point, Aaron, one thing that I want to highlight, because you mentioned how your AST doesn't go down to one for tobramycin, but I, I do think it's important. This is where MIC distributions are actually valuable for me. And that's that very few isolates actually have twos or fours. And so that's why tober doesn't change a whole lot when you go from four to one as a breakpoint, where the other ones are getting just smashed. Tobramycin doesn't change a whole lot in this situation. And so I think that that's an important thing for sites to be aware of as they're trying to, to deal with this. I think the big difference that I would have is that Again, for us, the numbers fall where they fall. Um, and the number for amicacin where it falls is two. That's actually the same if it's stasis or one lung. It's a two. And that is 28% of pseudomonads have amicacin MICs of two or less. And so that is where our breakpoint is. And, and is and that urine only or is that systemic as well? Ours is for everything. Our, okay. our breakpoint is for everything. Okay. Our kind of current stance is that we don't treat urine differently because while we know that there are different considerations, I don't think we know what they are. And so we just have the one thing. So amicacin is still an option for us for systemic, but it's at a breakpoint of two. And again, when you have a breakpoint of two, it's about high 20s with percent susceptibility. Um, there are a lot that are at four. And so if you do, again, please look at our presentations and comment, but if you have an STDM breakpoint uh, a breakpoint at four, you can get up to about 70% susceptibility. Um, but by and large, it puts a nice little knife in amicacin as well. Yeah. And Aaron, I think for our audience, it's hugely important to note here again that the FDA has not had a crack at these yet. I expect this to be a very contentious and lengthy discussion because, you know, as has been noted by both Jason and Mike, the data behind a lot of this is definitely not where we would like it to be. I expect that the agency is liable to struggle with what to do with some of these recommendations. And based off past history with the polymyxins, I'm a little bit concerned about what may ultimately come of this, but I think that's really important for our listeners to know because that is going to impact all of the commercial systems in their lab. One other thing I want to add about the clinical data for this is that I, I think that, Mike, I, I really appreciated how you summed it up because it's an absence of evidence, right? It's not an evidence of absence. I don't think we really know how these drugs work in patients if dosed appropriate to the right MIC and all of those types of things. And so I really think that's an important caveat to this story. And people often talk about how they've performed poorly in studies or these types of things, but those data don't really exist. And in addition to that, if you're given too low of a dose and the breakpoint is too high, well, maybe that's the reason that they've done poorly in all of those studies, right? So I, I think that the clinical piece is still out here. I think in the animal models, the immunoglycosides behave phenomenally. Yeah, thanks guys. I think, Jim, you could be a host too. That was how I was gonna kind of wrap this up as we finished this discussion is that, is this real yet? Or are we still waiting on the FDA to weigh in? And so if you listen to last week's episode where we talked about Pipercil and Tazobactam, the FDA has weighed in on those updates for the aminoglycoside breakpoints they have not yet, so TBD. But I think in the pseudomonas space, this is uh, a bigger 
rocking. Last week, Piptazo, the Enterobacterialis, was kind of the huge change. Now with um, aminoglycosides, it's related to Pseudomonas. So no more breakpoint for Gent. Tober breakpoint dropped to one. And amicacin for CLSI, 16 stays, but urine only for US cast drops to two. So some pretty major changes that people should be aware of. Dosing is what we're familiar with using the extended interval high dosing daily, seven mix per keg for Tobra, 15 mix per keg for amicacin. And with that, guys, I think we, we're wrapping up this week's episode on aminoglycosides. Anything that anything else that we want to share with our audience before we sign off for the aminoglycosides, other than we eagerly await the FDA's comment and then how we're all going to implement this? <laughs> Absolutely. Eager beavers. But thank you guys so much. This concludes week three of our five-week series talking about breakpoints. Next week, we'll be talking about the fluoroquinolones, and we can't wait. Thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. This episode was hosted by Aaron McCreary, and Breakpoints was created by Julian Justo, myself, and Jason Pogue, one of our panelists here today. This episode was produced by Dr. Jillian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard, and it was edited by the one and only Dr. Jillian Hayes. Our production team includes Dr. Veronica Zafont and Dr. Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Dr. Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke, and this episode was peer-reviewed by Drs. Crystal Hodge and Dr. Eileen Ahaskali. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.